Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Nick Scott at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Well, good morning to you all. Well, we're in the middle of a series on the extravagant love of God. What a, a wonderful topic this is. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this on podcast, be encouraged to download our new app, which will enable you to see the screens that are being used. In fact, even as you sit here this morning, those of you who are quick and uh, uh, phone savvy, you can do that right now. You can go to mounties.org.au forward slash app. And uh, some of you just look at me blankly, which is such a fine thing as well. Uh, because I know that I sound like some kind of techno whiz kid, let me strongly advise you that if you have any further questions about all of this, uh, you'd be wise to ask somebody else. Um, ideally, one of your grandchildren almost certainly can help you. Uh, that's actually how simple it is. So I've had a look this morning and discovered that uh, indeed the screens that we'll use this morning, you can actually look at on your phone and make additional notes uh, on that. So that's a wonderful new development. Well, our focus today is on the adoptive love of God, and uh, we have a reading, 1 John 3, 1 to 3, which, of course, some of you can look at on your app. Others, just look at the screen, it's fine. And uh, Helen is going to read that for us. Thanks, Helen. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Excellent. Thanks so much, Helen. Well, let me begin with with a question this morning. When was the last time you came across something that absolutely astonished you? When was the last time you saw something or discovered something that caused you to exclaim out loud, wow, that is absolutely amazing. Maybe it was uh, Steve Smith's catch on Friday night. Uh, Those of you who are watching the cricket are cricket fans. Um, I know for me, I just went, wow, that's just absolutely astonishing. For me, actually, it's a fairly easy question to, uh, to answer. A few weeks ago, Margie and I were in the Jordanian desert. You know, the landscape of the desert in Jordan is so extraordinary, you could easily think that you're on another planet, actually. And those of you who've been to Wadi Rum, this is a place called Wadi Rum in Jordan, where uh, really you just spend the whole time exclaiming loudly, wow, I have never seen anything like that before. Uh, I found myself exclaiming loudly, uh, continuously, almost as astonishing was the fact that Margie and uh, Jane Thrift rode camels. Uh, here's proof of that in the next picture. Look at that, there they are, riding camels. Uh, astonishing. <laughs> Some of you might just go, wow, that's a, this is a surprising thing. Well, the reading today begins with John saying, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us. And there's a little Greek phrase, you won't know if you don't understand Greek, because it's sort of tucked away in there in the text, but it's a phrase that expresses absolute astonishment. 
It's the same phrase, actually, you'll find in Matthew 8, 27, a couple more verses we've got up there, after Jesus has rebuked the wind and the waves. Remember that story? They're in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and this storm comes up. Jesus just calmly gets up and just calms the wind and the waves. And uh, in response, his disciples are uh, they're astonished, and they say, what kind of a man is this? Who, who are you? Like, they're just absolutely amazed, as you can uh, understand and appreciate. It's that same phrase. It's the same phrase that's used in Mark 13, verse 1, when the disciples are uh, they're at the temple of Jerusalem and they're just marvelling at the, just the sheer size of the temple, the size of the stones, and uh, they say to Jesus, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Uh, so these are excla- exclamations of uh, astonishment. And uh, we see this again here in 1 John 3, 1, where really John is saying... Wow, this is something amazing. Wow. Uh, Eugene Peterson, I think, captures it well in the message when he says, what marvellous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it, says Eugene Peterson. Just look at this. We are children of God. What an extraordinary thing. And what John's saying is that if we can truly grasp the, this, this reality that God himself, the almighty creator God, God himself has adopted us into his family. It will astonish us. If we can get our heads around it, it'll amaze us. It'll take our breath away. So this morning I want to try and bring out um, three astonishing truths about God's adoptive love and they just come directly from this passage and the first is quite simply the astonishing truth that we are children of God here's an important distinction to understand all people are created by God created in the image of God which is you know in in itself an extraordinary truth But not all people are children of God. All people are created in the image of God. Not all people are children of God. Uh, Here's a picture coming up of my new little grandchild. Isn't that exciting? I thought I'd get in early with the proud grandfather thing. Now I find that picture astonishing. At a number of levels, actually. If you look closely at this picture, you can, you can count the ribs. You can see the detail of the spinal column. Goodness, when our kids were in utero, I remember seeing the, uh, <laughs> the, the ultrasound pictures and thinking, well, that, that, that could be a kidney bean. Like, there's actually this... <laughs> are you sure? Like, that, that's, that's life? Okay, we'll take your word for it. Not with pictures like this. Uh, astonishing. Then if we go to the next picture we see, um, what an enormous head. Uh, That's astonishing. Let's hope those proportions change over the next few months. But seriously, if I were not a believer in God, it's pictures like this that would very likely uh, at least begin to move me in the direction of faith in a creator God. The formation of life is something that's truly astonishing. 
And when this little one is born, he or she will be, of course, a beautiful, miraculous creation of God, but not yet a child of God by biblical understanding and definition. Now, that's not a comment about whether young children who die will be saved. I happen to believe they will. Uh, That's another topic for another day. Uh, My point here is that a child of God is something that you become and the prerequisite for adoption into God's family is not natural birth, but it is faith. Uh, John 1.12, if we can go onto that next screen, says that to all who received him, to those who received Jesus, again says John, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a, a husband's will, but born of God. And so we understand that we're born into this world naturally, each one of us, but then we become children of God. Some of us become children of God. How? Well, by faith, by belief, by confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Do that, says Paul in Romans 10, 9, and you will be saved. What Jesus famously said to Nicodemus You must be born again. You must be born again. Now Nicodemus uh, was a pretty smart guy. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Even he was a little bit flummoxed uh, by Jesus' words. He's trying to get his head around. He says, surely, surely a man can't re-enter his mother's womb to be born a second time. And Jesus says to him, no, no, You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again, Nicodemus, to enter into this extraordinary privilege of adoptive love, to be adopted into God's family, uh, involves something new that you need to go through. It involves a rebirth. It involves you not just, you know, mentally assenting to a new set of doctrines. It involves... You're becoming something that you were not before. And that happens by faith. Now having said that, it's important to remember that our adoption into God's family involves our response, but primarily it's God the Father's initiative, like any adoption process. It's the initiative of parents or would-be parents, not the initiative of the children. John does not say, how great is the faith required of the human being that he or she should be called a child of God. He doesn't say that. Sometimes that's our emphasis and we think of ourselves as the initiators of our own salvation. And so we say things like, I have, I have become a Christian. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have given my heart To the Lord. Well, they're all reasonable statements. They're not untrue statements. But the greater emphasis is the truth that God the Father has taken the initiative. That God the Father has sent his Son. God the Father has lavished his love on you and me. And he has adopted us into his family. God has done this. You haven't done it. You've responded to that. But this is something that God the Father has done. And how great... How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. Well, that is astonishing. I wonder if you're astonished by that this morning. 
Well, the second astonishing truth is that uh, we will be like him. Such a simple little phrase. Let me unpack it for you. John says that what we will be has not yet been revealed, but there will come a time when the true reality of our extraordinarily elevated status in the family of God will be revealed fully for all to see, for all people to see, for all of creation to see. In the meantime, if we read Romans 8, uh, we're told that the whole of creation has been growing, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, we see evidence of that groaning of creation all around us, don't we? You know, soaring temperatures, bushfires, uh, the, the terrible volcanic eruption in New Zealand. These things are, are terrible things that are happening all around the world uh, all the time. We need to pray for those families, certainly those ones caught up in that New Zealand tragedy. We hear stories of climate change in the news almost every single day. The, these people, the Extinction Rebellion, well, I mean, good thinking. I, I think we should all rebel from extinction. Uh, <laughs> seems like common sense, doesn't it? But, you know, it's as though the world is waking up to the idea, this idea that the world is rapidly hurtling towards some kind of culmination. And I would say, surely it is. The thing is, if you remove God from the picture which is what many people have done around the world, removed God from the picture. But if you remove God from the picture, then that seeming culmination of the natural order of things is a truly terrifying thought. It is. It's, it's terrifying. But for those of us who believe that God is very much in the picture and central to the picture, we would say, I hope that a very different future lies ahead. Because, you see, God's plan for the world is not extinction, but restoration. Yes. This is God's plan. And so we would say that the groans of creation that we see around us are not a death rattle, quite the opposite. They are the pangs of childbirth. Well, that is a very different picture. Romans 8, 19 says that the creation waits in eager expectation. What does it wait for? For the children of God to be revealed. Extraordinary statement. Verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we groan inwardly, it goes on to say in verse 23, which I think is not up there, we groan inwardly as we wait. What are we waiting for? According to Paul, we groan inwardly because we are waiting for our adoption as children, our full adoption, the redemption of our bodies, says Paul. And that's the reality of the groaning of any advanced pregnancy. Those of you women who have given birth, let me ask you, did you groan at any point? <laughs> you betcha. The whole creation is groaning. It's about to give birth to something. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth and so what that means is that around the globe 
and the Extinction Rebellion people see it, by the way. Around the globe, there's discomfort, there's trauma, there's unpleasantness, there's pain. But you know what? It's all building to something wonderful, something astonishing. Something astonishing. Something that will be revealed when Jesus returns and his full glory will be revealed. And we, we think about that, think of just trying to imagine what that might look like. The full glory of Jesus being revealed at his second coming. And then try and get into your heads this wonderful, astonishing truth that we will be like him. We will see him in all of his glory. And says the scripture, we will be like him. This is the astonishing power of his adoptive love, that we will be like him. His appearing will be spectacular and glorious, and we in that moment will be like him. Well, the whole of the created order of things waits in eager expectation for that. Not for extinction, but for the revelation of the children of God. And we will be like him. Well, that's astonishing. The third astonishing truth about God's adoptive love is that as we look forward to what is to come, we purify ourselves through our moral choices. Verse 3 says that all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Hope. I love the imagery in the scripture of hope as an anchor. We find it there in Hebrews 6, 19 which says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's our hope that holds us firmly in place, in actual fact. We have this hope as an anchor. Think of a boat that is firmly anchored to the bottom. The anchor lodges there on the ocean floor and you know the tide will rise and fall. And on the surface, storms may rage, but the anchor will hold the boat firmly in place. Well, see, that's, this is what hope in Christ does for us. And so storms can rage all around us, uncertain circumstances, loss of employment, broken relationships, things like sickness and tragedy, uh, financial hardship. These things can rage all around us. But I have lowered my anchor of hope. I wonder if you've done the same. What that means is that I know who I am and I know whose I am. What it means is that I know that I am loved by God, that I belong in his family, that I've been adopted into the family of God. And so I know where I'm going. I know what lies ahead. I know what I'm looking forward to. I know that one day I will be like him in all of his glory. My hope is in Christ and my life is anchored securely to him. We have this hope as an anchor. It's a wonderful truth. Well, then here in verse 3, John writes something that at first glance seems like an error. I had to read it a couple of times. You almost want to pull John aside and say, Hey, John, are you sure about this next bit? Are you, are you, can we go back to that verse, that verse 3. Are you sure about that? Are you sure this is what you mean? All who have this hope in him purify themselves. See, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, oh, hang on, doesn't sound right. Maybe, John, what you mean is 
All who have this hope in him are purified by the blood of Jesus. That, that's, that's better, surely, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's what we think would, should be written. Well, I think John's response would be, no, no, actually, we'll just leave it as it is. <laughs> because while it's absolutely true that only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the stain and guilt of sin, we would all say that's true. And yet we also have a part to play in purifying ourselves from sin's power. Even as I say that, I think, oh, should I be saying that out loud? We have a part to play in purifying ourselves from sin's power. We don't tend to emphasise that because we emphasise the grace of God and that's a right emphasis. We've sung about that. We sing about that a lot. We talk about that a lot, right, that we do. Because God has done it all. And we are saved by his grace, not by our own efforts. But see, the danger of that emphasis is that we, it can lead us to the conclusion that then our efforts are irrelevant, that our efforts are not required, that our efforts, we don't need to make any effort. But a careful reading of Scripture will remind us that, in fact, our concerted efforts in pursuing moral purity are in fact vitally important and in actual fact we purify ourselves by our choices or I would suggest the opposite is true as well we contaminate ourselves by our choices three other New Testament writers if you're just thinking maybe John's lost the plot three other New Testament writers uh, say the same thing as John Let me read these for you. Paul says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. There it is. From everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What about James? Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What about Peter? If we still have any doubt. Now that you have purified yourselves amazing isn't it how you can be familiar with the scriptures and then miss some of these things now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other now love one another deeply from the heart but John's emphasis is that because we are so loved by God that he adopts us into his family this astonishing love should drive us to now pursue lives of moral purity and to strive for that. And see, this is the power of love. It can motivate behavioural change. It can do that even on a human level. You love someone, you can actually affect their behaviour, all the more so with the love of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul uses that famous phrase, the love of Christ compels us. It's the love of God, actually, that sort of drives us forward. Interestingly, that word for compels means to hold fast. So again, we have this imagery of the anchor. The love of Christ compels us. It holds us fast. It drives us. What that means is that in the face of temptation of various kinds, we're wise to remind ourselves of the astonishing love of God, our Father, who welcomes us into his family, adopts us as his children, and then calls us to then live lives worthy 
of the calling we have received. Lives marked by acts of selfless service, generosity, kindness to others, moral purity. Discover this astonishing truth that we actually play a part in purifying ourselves through our moral choices. That's astonishing. I find that astonishing. Well, as we come to the table this morning, it's perhaps a timely reminder that when we fail, which we will, and when we fall short, when we sin against God and against one another, that there is, of course, forgiveness freely available through the cross. That God doesn't send us away. Thank the Lord. He doesn't have some sort of strike three and you're out policy. Well, I've warned you twice. This is the third time. Maybe, yeah. No, not at all. He forgives and in forgiving, he says, my body was given for you. My blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so now I want you to learn to grow, to understand that you are my child, that I've adopted you into my family and I want the best for you. I don't want you doing that stuff that's going to destroy you. I want the best for you. I want fullness of life for you. You're my children. And so live lives worthy of your calling. And in fact, as you come to the table, the Lord would say, start afresh today. My mercy is in you every morning. Great is my faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of God. Let's read this together aloud. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Amen. Let's pray. Let me pray before we share together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And Lord, even as we come forward this morning and share in this meal, we pray that you would help us as we go from this place today to be those who say no to ungodliness, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, the one who will come again, this hope that we have that is like an anchor for our souls that we would fix our eyes on you the one who will come again and when you come again Lord Jesus we will be like you so we thank you for your love we thank you that in your love you've adopted us into your family and we pray Lord this morning that somewhere deep down we might collectively be astonished at the depth of your love for us and its implications for our present and for our future. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. 
If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.